Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And now our listeners can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. Restaurant or room service, what would the boss do? Either way, the boss would choose Hilton Hotels and Resorts to get down to business. And a little pleasure. Check out Hilton Hotels and Resorts and travel like the boss. This is Recode Media from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm in for Peter Kafka. I'm a media and politics reporter at BuzzFeed News, and I'm here in the Vox Media studios today in New York City. Let me first say something that Peter usually says, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Please tell someone else about this show. (laughs) Thank you very much. So today I'm really excited to be in the studio with Matt Taibbi. He's a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. He's the author of several books. He's the author of a new book called The Fairway that he's releasing as an email newsletter. It's a very 2018 way to release a book. Matt, welcome to Recode Media. Thanks very much for having me. So lots to talk about, but seeing as this is a podcast that focuses on the business of media, I wanted to Mm -hmm. start with your new project. Um, You're releasing a book uh, and some of your writings on Substack. For our listeners who, who aren't familiar with that platform. What What is Substack and why did you start uh, working with them? It's an email subscription site where there's all sorts of content, uh, lots of different kinds of writers who are essentially sending out emails of content on a regular basis. And when I was approached to do this, the only room in my contract at Rolling Stone that, that wasn't covered was books. So I thought, that it would be really interesting to do something that I've always wanted to do, which was, you know, serialized books, try that out. And I think um, uh, in the internet age, you know, it may be a new way uh, for people to experiment with with different kinds of content that they wouldn't uh, otherwise get to try. Because right. we've always had this, the middleman, you know, whether it's our publisher at, you know, at a magazine or a newspaper or the book publisher. This allows you to kind of directly go to the reader and allows me after decades in the business to play around with things that I that I wouldn't get to do normally. Right. And you're sort of the in, in a little bit of a rare case where you're like a magazine writer, but with a national profile. So you have an audience that might say, you know, I'm willing to pay. And what is it like five dollars a month? Exactly. Yeah. For your for your work. And it's, right. And so the book that you're serializing, can you sort of describe, because it's a little bit, it's different than some of the work that you've done in the past. It's fiction, right? Sure, yeah. Well, the first one I did was called The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing. And this was a project that came about because I had a longtime friend, somebody I'd met in the course of my, you know, work as a journalist, who kind of came out to me after a few years as a high-level marijuana kingpin, basically. And wow. um, and so we sat down and tried to figure out a way that we could tell that story. Now, he's never been arrested on a drug charge, so he had to be anonymous. And we ended up co-writing what's essentially like a fictionalized version of his adventures. And this was a, a new kind of um, writing for me because what we what we really did is we sat down and I interviewed him over and over and over again, hundreds of hours probably. And then we just took the best details and sort of reconfigured them into into a narrative. And it was it was cool. It was a lot of fun. And it's 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 his voice. If you read the book, it, it comes out as him, not me. But and the, the I, process for you was similar to reporting, right? I mean, oh, yeah. some similar sort of process, but different. 
well, different it, kind of form. Yeah, it was a different form, and then there was the additional uh, thing where the, a lot of it, it really is fictionalized, which is something that was completely new for me. And that was really, you know, a, a collaborative process with me and, and this sort of unnamed African-American drug dealer. And we sat down and kind of figured out how would it go? You know, how, how would a meeting, you know, f- how would a buy like this go? Um, how, how What would happen if you stiffed this kind of person on a deal? And that was a lot of fun. And when I when I sat down to write it, one of the things that was really interesting to notice was that the pace of the writing was a lot faster than my own. And I'm somebody who like tries to to write in a way that's that's very fast. So it was it was a lot of fun. It was a blast to do. It was, it was as much fun as I've had writing in my in my career. Now, as someone who's sort of familiar with what it's like to work at a magazine, someone who's worked at a you know media startup, I think you're seeing a lot of reporters now and, and different writers looking at email newsletters or at least ways to say, like, I have an audience, let me monetize it direct to my reader. I don't trust Facebook. I don't trust Google. Um, I don't trust, like, large media organizations. What was that experience for you like? How has that been different than working in sort of the traditional media landscape? Well, first of all, your audience isn't given, right? Like yeah, you when have you, to earn it. you have to earn it, and um, you know the price point's high enough that it actually has to be pretty good material for people to stay. And when I write something for Rolling Stone, you know X number of people are going to see it every time, no matter what I do. This is different, and it's it's also you're not writing with the same kind of immediacy that's behind periodical journalism. Like when you when you are responding to something that's in the news, people are already primed mentally for that experience because they've, it's already in the ether, right? There there there's this feeling of like this is in the air right now. When you're sending something to somebody by email once a week, right, uh, and it doesn't come when the event happens, but it comes, you know, on schedule, and it's something that's more reflective, that's a much harder thing to do. It's uh, kind of funny that the email newsletter has endured yeah. in, in the way that it has in the media business, where, like, it is still actually a pretty lucrative business model, and... There's been like this return to the email newsletter over the past few years that is sort of interesting, and I think you see writers embracing that. Well, I think I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I right. think it one, pops open in your inbox. It's like for you, right? Right. You, and it's not in your feed. You chose it, right? right? And and that's that's a big part of what's going on in the media that people can't stand right now is is the manipulation that goes on with the with algorithms at, at platforms like Facebook. You know, with the you know you're walking along, you're hanging out with your kids, and all of a sudden your phone buzzes because Facebook has decided that you need to see this equilibrium upsetting headline about something. Um, right. People actually, even though they do it, even though even though they they do look at the the headline and they do spend hours and hours and hours scrolling through stuff, there's a part of them that hates it and that and that wants that wants to make the choice to pick up something the same way they used to pick up the newspaper whenever they felt like it. Right. I mean, I think, you know, to one of the things that you've written about and you've written about for the Fairway for on Substack is cable news. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, m- much like uh, the magazine business, very much changing. But in a way, cable news is sort of more important than ever before. Sure. We have a president who is obsessed with it, even though the sort of industry at large is facing all these challenges like an aging population and, and cord cutting. How do you think cable news is sort of handling the Trump moment? Um, you've been Terrible. critical. <laughs> Why? Why is that? And well, how? For a variety of reasons. First of all, we were the, the, the cable era was enormously responsible for the Trump era. Let's, let's, let's start with that, right. right? I mean, you have to go way back in history to see all these changes. And, and 
I grew up in the media. My father was a television reporter, so I watched all the different stages of change in television reporting. And the 24-hour news cycle had a profound effect on the way we cover news because uh, now there was, a, there was a new emphasis now on not doing one, two-minute hit a day on something you thought was interesting, but instead we found stories that were visually appealing and that could string people along for hours. Like the classic example is, you know, a baby falling down a well or the cursed disaster or something like that. We're like, oh, what's going to happen next? And the campaign was it turned into a story where we trained uh, our audiences to be like, you can't turn off the, the the station because anything could happen at any given moment, right? Because there's so much coverage of like a Trump rally? and uh, or This just is before sort of- Trump. Even, even before, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. But even before Trump, we did so many hits about this stuff and, and, and we, we microanalyzed every tiny little thing and told people that it was all important. And then Trump comes along and, you know, we, we had created a bad reality show. Trump was a good reality show. He was somebody who, who created oh, insane, crazy, horrible drama. And we, you know, of course we couldn't resist putting it on television at all hours because it was perfect. It was perfect for the, you know, sales-wise for the medium. And the one thing that you haven't seen since Trump has become president, and you've seen a lot of like, you know, quasi-reflective changes in the media. One thing you haven't seen is less coverage of Trump. Like we're, we're doing more of it and we're, and we're more profitable than ever. And, and that's, that's because this is what sells. Right. I mean, I I remember Michelle Wolf at the White House Correspondents' Dinner you know, one of the things that she said that was sort of overshadowed by the Sarah Sanders controversy was like, you know, you should be thanking Trump. He's of course, and and it's and it's a criticism that that you know Trump has said as well. I do think that like you're starting to see cable news executives like they like this week for for instance they you know Fox News didn't take either Trump rally live. Mm-hmm. They went back to it. So I think and not you know obviously they're still covering Trump. Everyone is wall to wall, but it seems like news executives are starting to look at things like Trump rallies, which there are a lot right now. It's, you know, ahead of the midterms and saying like, how much airtime, just live airtime should we really give to this guy? Because CNN got absolutely killed, you know, by the media press for, and, and a lot of people for just kind of giving him all the free airtime during the Yeah, my, my take on that is that this is a superficial change. It's, you know, the way, I, the way I put it is we replaced one million hours of Trump with one million hours of Trump is bad. Right. And um, we just took what we were doing and we added on this new thing where we're openly against it and we're, we're, we're adding this new editorial take on it. And do you think from sort of the Russia gate perspective or just writ large? No, writ large. I mean, look. Trump has earned that that kind of treatment by reporters, and I and I get that, but. I think that there's there are both commercial and ethical reasons why we've we've decided to take this switch. I think what I think what happened after, and I wrote I, I wrote a lot about this in the sort of next chapter of the fairway. It's um, we took a lot of heat during 2016 for giving him billions of free coverage, and the, the we we had this fork in the road. Like, are we going to cover him less, or are we going to are we going to cover him the same amount but in a different way? And then we we chose door number two, and you know, rather than than have this reckoning after the election, like, my God, 40 years of dumbing down the campaign process led us to this. 
Instead, the new thing was, oh, democracy dies in darkness. We're going to be the intrepid crusaders against right. Trump. Like, you know, come on. Like, we, we, we brought this about. We dumbed down the process long before Trump even ran for president. And, and we haven't reckoned with that. Do you think that, you know, democracy dies in darkness, like Marty Baron likes to say, you know, we're not at war, we're at work. There's this sort of renaissance of traditional media right now with the Times and, and the Post. And, like, but in a, in a way, the Times and the Post these traditional media outlets feel like ill-equipped to handle the Trump moment. Like as soon as right-wing, you know, Twitter trolls are are on them, they're like contorting in ways that they don't understand that maybe people are operating in bad faith. What is your outlook of of the sort of traditional newspapers and how they are handling, you know, this moment? Because it's been good for business, but it's, at it's the same been, time, it's, it's, it's been great it's for business, which makes which makes me skeptical of all of all of these changes because I look at it in, in much the same way that I look at the way the Democratic Party has responded to the Trump phenomenon. Like you know, after the election, there could have been this like come to Jesus moment where we said, "Wow, you know, how, how did we lose all these voters?" Right? You know, let's go back and figure out what it is about our pitch to people that isn't working, right? And so instead of spending the last two years coming up with like a new New Deal that, that might might have been more appealing to ordinary people, we instead sort of, they, they doubled down on let's focus on Trump's negativity, let's investigate and let's do all these other things, right? So it's, Trump was always at the center of the picture, whereas I think there's a, big, there's a bigger picture about what journalism's mission is, right? Like you're not seeing more stories about poverty or, um, you know, important issues, what you're just seeing is a new twist on Trump. And and that's that's why I'm skeptical about all of this, right? Because people like me have, have forever struggled to get certain kinds of content into the press. And it's now even harder because everything has to have a Trump angle to it. Right. I wanted to read something that you wrote recently about this. You said, people should trust reporters. It's the context in which they're operating that's problematic. Now more than ever, most journalists work for giant nihilistic corporations whose editorial decisions are skewed by a toxic mix of political and financial considerations. Unless you understand how those pressures work, it's very difficult for a casual news consumer to gain an accurate picture of the world. That's sort of like what we're talking about, but I'm curious, like, what is the pressure? I mean, I'm a reporter. I cover politics and media. Nobody's telling me, like, hey, you need to take down Trump. I mean, that's just not how we work. No, it's like it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You know, uh, my mandate is to break news and write, you know, features of impact and, you know, guest host the occasional podcast. But, you know, what, what do you see as the sort of perverse pressures on reporters right now? It's drilled into you from the beginning, that you, uh, the, from the first days that you entered into the business. You just get you, you learn to like on a sub intellectual level, guess what kinds of stories fly and what kinds of stories don't, right? Like you, if you want to do a 10-part series on, on, you know, why private equity people don't pay a whole lot of taxes or the, the seven different ways that, that, they, that they evade taxes. And it's an important story, right? Like, and it's an interesting story. I, I keep hearing about it often, like very often. But compared to, you know, any kind of story that has a Trump angle to it, it's just not going to sell as well, right? So this is in the back of your mind whenever whenever you're talking to your editors, whenever you're thinking about what you're going to pitch to editors, you just know that a certain kind of story is is going to be met with, hmm, yeah, maybe, right? And, right? and other stories are going to be like, yeah, let's do it today, right? How, I mean, how do you get to a place where that kind of journalism can be backed by a successful business model? I mean, is it something like the email newsletter business or a, a you know, ProPublica type model? Because there are important stories about poverty, 
I, you know, I think about this all the time with like climate change. It seems like every year there's like one big magazine piece about climate change that goes viral. And everyone's like, oh my God, have you read this? And then like nobody talks about it on right. Twitter for another year. Exactly. And then there's another one the next year. So like people do want to read that stuff. They do want to read about poverty. They, they do. do um, I, you know, not asking you to sort of solve the media business here, but like, is there a business model that makes sense where where you can do that kind of work, pay journalists a good wage, get people to read it, and and you know, everyone everyone's happy? Well, that's that's the million dollar question, right? I mean, I think uh, on the one hand, there's always been some kind of subsidy that has figured into journalism work, like the original bargain of the pu- public public interest standard basically said. You can use the public airwaves to have a TV station and do TV news as long as you promise to reinvest some of your profits from your dumb stuff back into real journalism, right? And for a while, we did that, right? And then we started to drift away from that in the in the 90s. There were other subsidies that, that figured in. I mean, if you go back to the very beginning, right, like the, you know, we gave, we allowed newsletters to have free postage, right, once upon a time. But, you know, in addition to that, journalists need to find strategies strategies to kind of sneak past important content, you know, past this problem. For ages, when, when I was doing like the financial services stuff, I used a lot of storytelling techniques. You know, I, I, I tried to take stories about Wall Street and create uh, villains and heroes, recognizable fa- faces, use, uh, you know, wild language, metaphors, all, all that stuff. And that sometimes will get you past uh, the, the threshold of, you know, getting people to read it. Or you need some sort of, like, benevolent billionaire to come well, in and buy yeah. your publication and pump resources into it. Of like. course. I mean, yeah, I worked for, you know, for Jan Winter throughout this entire time. If you if you have an eccentric rich person, right, who's who's willing to to be like, yeah, sure, do that. I mean, that's that's another way to do it. It's just not a business model that you can count on. Right. I mean, so you mentioned the the financial crisis. I I started reading your work not to make you, you know, feel old sort of in, in college <laughs> during the during the financial crisis and you you came to a lot more national prominence writing about politics and the financial crisis and you know, you you famously wrote that Goldman Sachs is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money, um, which sort of became a famous line of yours. It's been 10 years since mm-hmm. the financial crisis. Yep. You, you wrote a story recently saying you're economically nothing's changed and, and we're, we're still sort of in the same situation. I, I wonder, you know, since this is a sort of media podcast, media discussion, what are the lessons that the financial press or the press learned at all from the financial crisis 10 years on? Do, do you see anything there? I mean, a, a little tiny bit, but not really. I mean, I, I think the the big obstacle that I had with that story, and I was, again, I was really lucky that I had editors who thought it was interesting. We got a, a response early to this stuff. But um, the thing, the reason that we got a response Response is because what we were doing was basically translating the the kind of incomprehensible language of the financial press for ordinary people. I mean, that, that was essentially what it was. It was, if you pick up the Financial Times, you won't understand what a credit default swap right. is. But, what what know, subprime mortgages yeah, are. Yeah, you have to, and Rolling Stone can kind of explain that in a way where an average reader can say, okay, like now I get it. Yeah, or, you know, exactly. And in, in the sort of metaphors you're using. Right. Um, but it's still, you're saying that the financial press is still unintelligible to that, to the yeah. average reader. I mean, the, the, it's not aimed at the ordinary person, right? I mean, if you if you pick up the most financial outlets, and this, this is not their fault because that's where their customers are for the most part. People who are most intensely interested in... Yeah, investors and right. companies, yeah. CEOs. Yeah. Exactly. But there are moments when, you know, ordinary people have to learn 
what's going on and we don't we don't have a mechanism for helping people wade through all that stuff and and i think one of the things that we found out in the financial crisis was there uh, layers of complexity had been added to the financial world that were were now beyond most ordinary readers. Like people didn't know what a derivative was. They didn't know how mortgages were sold. They didn't understand securitization. They didn't understand. Most people still think that when you get a mortgage, like your bank is holding it, you know? Right. Um, and and so that's why, you know, fallacies like the subprime, the mortgage crisis was caused by people, you know, the government forcing people to take lend out mortgages. That's why that took hold because we just didn't have that kind of educational process going on. And um, unfortunately, I, I don't I don't see that there's a lot of that has changed. There's been there's been more interest in it. There are more blogs that that taken on, but it's not it's not right. and institutionally part of the business. Plus, like media companies that might have done some of the toughest reporting on on these you know matters were hit hard by. Of by course. the financial crisis itself, so yeah. so that that sort of reporting maybe you know is, is is not there quite as much anymore. We are going to take a quick break now so that Peter Kafka can tell you about this show's sponsors. We'll be back with Matt Taibbi after this. Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. You know what's not smart? Playing Fortnite when you should be doing homework. You know what is smart? Using Zip Recruiter to hire for your business. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Their powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And ZipRecruiter spotlights the top candidates for your job so you never miss out on a great match. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. Who rates them number one? Trustpilot. They rated hiring sites with more than 1,000 reviews. That's who. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Now, our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. When you travel for work, do you stay by the airport or do you stay downtown? Do you take your clients out for dinner? Do you have room service? Should you pack your swimsuit? How do you answer these questions? Just ask yourself, what would the boss do? Here's the answer. The boss would choose Hilton. Hilton has modern meeting spaces and amazing pools and everything else you need to get down to business and a little pleasure. So check out Hilton Hotels and Resorts and travel like a boss. And we're back with Matt Taibbi. Matt, I wanted to ask something that may be a little bit more uncomfortable, but but a topic that I think we should talk about. Um, last year during your book tour for a book you wrote called I Can't Breathe, as the Me Too movement was really picking up steam, a book that you co-wrote about your time in Russia editing The Exile, it's an English-language newspaper, um, it came back into public view. This is a book that came out, I think, in 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And it, it detailed sexual harassment and even um, sexual assault. And, and you wrote... Uh, at length about this, you defended the book as a satire, but you apologized for the exile's misogyny and you apologized for writing, you know, dumb and hurtful things. At the same time, the exile was was really about presenting the real Russia, kind of, kind of tearing down what regular foreign correspondents did in Russia. And, um, you know, I feel like we're, we're at this moment now in time, the Me Too movement, the, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. Um, where he's been accused not only of sort of a you know a, a sexual assault, but of perhaps misrepresenting misogynist things from his past, like you know what what someone may write in a high school yearbook. And I'm wondering in this context, I know you've, you know you've talked about it um, 
some, but have you rethought your own experience um, in the wake of, of the, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings? Well, I'm not trying to be a Supreme Court justice. I, I, I wouldn't nominate me for the Supreme Court. I'm a writer. I'm a, and more particularly, I'm a humorist. And, and the, the exile was, was a shtick. It was a gross shtick. Uh, the whole point of it was <laughs> the idea behind the exile was we were, we were living in this community full of American expats who were ugly Americans at their worst. They were there. They were completely taking advantage of a third world country that was in chaos. They were doing blow and, and taking gazillions of dollars in consulting money. And our whole idea was that the exile would be like the newspaper for these people, right? So we we created this sort of gross Andrew Dice Clay style, right? Ugly American voice uh, of the paper, and it wasn't real. Unfortunately, there were aspects of it that that sort of became real over time. Like we, because the the paper's advertising base was almost entirely like you know, the worst kinds of nightclubs and strip clubs and brothels even. Um, you know, we did a lot of partying during that, that era and we did a lot of drugs and we kind of turned into the people that we were satirizing over time. Right. But the original original idea of the paper was just to be disgusting and to flout every single American convention. And so there's a lot of stuff in there that if you're just picking it up cold and you're not in that environment – it can be really jarring. I did write some stuff that was really stupid and uh, that I wouldn't do today. But the the specific allegation, you know, from last year was that I, I had actually sexually harassed my employees and that, that kind of stuff, which was completely untrue. And, and, and if anybody had bothered to call any of the people who were named in the book, they would have figured that out quickly and, and did actually when, once somebody did that. But yeah, of course I have regrets. I mean, the exile... I regret not necessarily because it was offensive to any particular group, but just because it was mean uh, in a way that was really gratuitous and unnecessary. Like, I think we we could have done something that was closer to Spy Magazine that was just kind of like appropriately nasty, and, and that would have been good enough. But we we were young and, you know, high, and, and, right. and it, got, it got out of hand. I mean, I think that, you know— uh, caveat being like we're two white guys talking about this, but sure. um, you know we are at this sort of moment where everyone is kind of rethinking what is okay, and and uh, you know there are all these gray areas, and I think like some of the things that you wrote from a more misogynist point of view, that's what you know stuck with with people, and I think has been written about you know at length. So I, I guess I was curious how you thought about you know your sort of what you wrote in the past in the context of like you know maybe, certainly not. You know, direct sexual harassment or sexual assault, but just, you know, how this stuff comes to the fore again and, and what sort of responsibility people should take. And, you know, not to say that you should be some sort of pariah, but like, how do you think about it? I mean, how do you, when you're, when you're watching? Well, I mean, you know, the, you can, you can tell what I think about it by how I write now. I mean, you know, back then, the, the operating humor that we had grown up with was Sam Kinison, Bill Hicks, um, Richard Pryor, where everything was fair game, and it was actually considered kind of a liberal position to be to be as disgusting as possible and to say the forbidden thing. And you know, even if 
you're being offensive, right? Like if you listen to uh, Richard Pryor's routine about like the stuttering Chinese waiter, right? Like you could never do that today. Sure. But when I grew up, that was like that was supposed to be the thing that liberals were celebrating. Like, hey, look, we're we're saying the forbidden thing. Right. That was the humor I grew up with. We tried to do a lot of that stuff when we picked on people. We, you know, completely were unbelievably cruel about physical characteristics, whether they were men or women. But, you know, if there were women, we did it for sure. And and when I came back to the States, that went out of vogue pretty quickly. And I learned, you know, a lot of things, you know, that that, that was inappropriate, um, you know, and, and I've completely changed the way that I do a lot of those things. But... You know, do I think that um, that should be disqualifying forever? No, I mean, like I, I, I am embarrassed by it for sure. But right. you know, it, it's it's a lesson that you learn. Sticking with with Russia, I mean, you, you, you get you get back, and the Russia story sort of feels over um, in a way. You know. Um, for, for years, and then now you find yourself sort of in this group of journalists who are like accidental Russia experts who, right, yeah. who, who spent time in like, you know, someone like a, like a David Remnick or, you know, who, who, who's... Or Masha Right, exactly. Who spent time over there, and then now all of a sudden, like, Russia is strangely the, the, the biggest story in the world. But you've been critical and you've been skeptical of a lot of the journalism surrounding the, the Mueller investigation and the Russia probe. And I wonder um, if you could sort of describe what, why is that? I mean, what, what do you see as well, a sort of problem with that journalism? First of all, a lot of us are. I mean, a, sure. a, 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 lot of, a lot of us who worked during that period, even those of us who didn't particularly like each other, people like Masha Gessen, you know, Leonid Bershitsky over at Bloomberg, who was a colleague of mine at the Moscow Times once upon a time. You know, a lot, a lot of us, for a lot of us, and most all of us were, you know, vehemently anti-Putin when he came to power. But there were elements of the story that just didn't add up for a lot of us, or that just seemed like sloppily reported. Now, there were, you know, my kind of um, moment where I, I was concerned about the story came very early when, with the release of the Steele report, I had done a lot of stories about short sellers uh, who were shorting stock, who had used a technique very similar to what went on with the Steele report in order to, to sort of move the tape on on the stock. You know, hire a private company to do a negative research uh, a report. You foist it into the hands of a regulatory agency. You tip off a report that, that it's now in the, in the hands of the FBI or the SEC. They do a report that it's the company's under investigation. You Then you cash in when the, when the stock plunges. There was an element to this with the Mueller report that just set off alarm bells for me. Like, you know, we're doing a story about handing a report that we can't verify from uh, from one intelligence person to Barack Obama or to, to Donald, Donald Trump. If you if you follow those early stories, the entire arc of the story was about the the, the journey of that report. Yeah, I mean, and this was before I should say this is before I joined BuzzFeed News when when um, we published the the dossier. I was actually sort of in talks with Ben Smith at the at the time, so it was a interesting week to be you know talking to them about a job. But, <laughs> um, but but yeah, the, the sort of defense from from BuzzFeed then and now was right like that this document is being talked about at the highest levels of government. Um, you know, the president, the president elect have been briefed on it, and um, you know we're in this sort of new era maybe of journalism where our readers are smarter and can decide. And you know, CNN had done a report saying there's this document, and BuzzFeed right. said that thing that everyone's talking about in government and media that everyone's seen, but you, the reader, have not. Here's what it is, right. and, with all the caveats involved. I mean, so you, you're saying you you think that that was a 
irresponsible journalism decision and that sort of set in motion this well, frenzy? It's, it's, a, it's a tough, I mean, like, I couldn't have done that story. I, I, I would have been scared to do that story. Like, if, if somebody had said, um, here's a report that says X, Y, and Z, I can't tell you who any of the sources are. I can't tell you where any of this information comes from. You're just going to have to trust me that I'm I'm a trustworthy person, and um, and it's serious, and and uh, and so therefore, you know, go go and report that uh, this report has traveled from a senator's hands to the, the CIA or whatever or whatever it is. That would make me very nervous. Like that that sets off alarm bells for me as a reporter. Like I, if there are parts of stories that I can't confirm. I started asking questions like, "Well, why?" You know, um, right. and and there's there's been a ton of this that's that's gone on in the in the Russia gets story, and I, that doesn't necessarily mean that I disbelieve it. I just I, I, you see a lot of stories where there are four unnamed intelligence sources all saying something that are is totally unverifiable. Right. And I mean, you think that one of the criticisms you hear often is like. You know, all of a sudden, the media, which is supposed to be deeply suspicious of intelligence sources, yeah. you know, is is perhaps overly relying on anonymous intelligence sources. Um, you know, maybe to their peril. So I I, I get that. I, I think that you know one of the things that you've written is you don't believe that there's sort of this collusion, but that there are you know Russia certainly interfered in the in the election that's, and they're sort of bad actors. That's what it looks like. I mean, there there's there's certainly more evidence for that than there than, than there is for for other things. I, but what bothers me, like take. Yeah, like, take, so let's pick a story that you that some New York Times or Washington Post, like a big story that you were like, mm, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I'll give you two. Okay, there was one from pretty early on where the New York Times said uh, Trump campaign officials had repeat contacts with Russian intelligence. All right, and if you and again, it was four current and former officials, none of them named. Now I knew, and everybody, anybody who lived in Russia knew that you constantly have contact with intelligence officials there, often whether you know it or not. Um, right. And uh, and the the story didn't specify whether the contact was knowing or unknowing, like what the, what the what the nature of it was. But the headline was incredibly damning, right? I was very concerned about the vagueness of it, the inability to uh, verify it, and then, sure enough, James Comey came out months later and said, "Well, that story isn't isn't true, right?" And so, if I'm the reporters, I'm really pissed about that, right? Like you burned me on this. Right. Then later, um, more recently, we had a story that said, "Oh, all of our informants in in Moscow have gone dark," right? Now, I get that the re- the sources in that story had to be high level. You know, sure. of course, of course they were. But how do you confirm that story? Like, think, think about it as a journalist. Like, if you get a, if you get a call, it doesn't matter to me if the, if the source is the head of the CIA. Like, it's not like you can go find those intelligence sources and confirm with them, right? I mean, can you look at the string of cables that have suddenly ceased? You can't, right? Like, and and I, I even called the paper and asked about that. You know, and I, and and I said, like, what's the deal with this? You like, said there's no public editor, so I can't. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> I have I, to. I have to call myself. Right? Yeah, exactly. And um, and so there's lots and lots of stuff. Did you get like, a response? I, I I did. I you know some of it was off the record, so okay. I can't I can't get into it. But the point is that there's kind of been an epidemic of this sort of thing where, you know, you have an intelligence source telling you something and it drives the story forward, sure, but like we don't know whether we're being made dupes or not. And there's a whole history of us being made dupes by, by this particular crowd and some of them, by the, in some cases, by, by these by individual g- people. By, and by good, good reporters you right. know, sort of falling for that. I mean, I, I think that there's been, that there's no question that there's been like just a ton of like great reporting about mm-hmm about the Russian investigation. But no, I mean, I think that's a reasonable point, that these are traps that papers like the Times have fallen into before. And, you know, I think that 
one of the big questions right now is like the use of anonymous sources and the overuse of anonymous sources. I mean, I think that that's, that's it's something that all reporters think about. But when you're dealing with this super high level stuff, it's, it's, it seems completely unavoidable. Well, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I, I we all I'll, do. I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll grant you. I mean, this podcast is on the record, though. Yeah, yeah, of course. But you know, and and what do you do if if a high level intelligence source comes to you and tells you something that you know is is very difficult to verify? But Cy Hirsch wrote it. Just wrote a, a memoir, right? Yeah. And he said something. He wrote something in there where he was um, the intelligence agencies were upset about the extent to which they'd been betrayed by a Soviet spy to Israel, I guess it was. It was an Israeli spy, I mm-hmm. guess, who had betrayed us. And so they invited him in and showed him all the stuff that had been given to the enemy. And Hirsch talked about how, like, you know, I, who had always sought the secrets, was now being handed the secrets, right? And there's a huge, huge difference. Like, if you're, if you're digging something up, that's when you feel really confident in something. But when somebody's calling you and handing you something, right, you that's, know, that's when you know someone has up. an axe to grind. And, right. You know, at the same time, yeah, obviously, the information could be true. But could when, be. So, when someone hands you something, yeah, you know, they obviously have some. There's a, re- there's a reason people talk to reporters. and um, right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and this particular community is a community that, that normally would not tell you the sky is blue if you're outside, right? Right. And, and so that, that, all of that makes me nervous. Now, it, it, could be, it could be true, but, you know, it's a factor that I think ordinary people are not aware of when they read these stories. Pivoting sort of to 2020, we've got another presidential campaign that will start probably the day after the midterms in, yeah. in, in earnest. And it's, it feels like things are going to get started really early this time. You've covered many campaigns. If you had to pick right now a campaign to embed yourself into to write your next book, you know it's it's obvious who the Democrats are, the handful that are pro- that are most certainly going to run. Um, what campaign do you think would be interesting as a reporter to cover? Not necessarily who you think is going to win because right. we've been wrong before um, in, yeah. in that. But what is interesting? What's an interesting story to you in twenty twenty? Well, I I stayed away from the Sanders campaign last time because I had kind of a relationship with with him. I had worked with him before, and I didn't want to you know, wade into that. But I, if he, if he runs this time, I think I'm, I want to do, um, I want to go that route. Um, and he'd sort of be the, the, the front runner at the, I mean, at this juncture. He could be. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think there's, there's really two stories that are, that are going to be key in 2021 is the sort of, will Trump be able to be a viable candidate? Will he win again? The other one is the schism that's going on in the Democratic Party and the sort of fight for the, for the party's soul, which to me is really an incredibly interesting story about like, it's really about fundraising. When you get right down to it, it's like, who's going to pay for our fundraising efforts? And Sanders has said, we're, we're not going to take money from, from here. This other group is, right? And, you know, I think that's a profound and interesting moment in our history. Are we going to finally you know, wean ourselves off that, that right. model? Um, so I, I, I think I'd, I'd like to cover that part. And it's going to be sort of wild to have, and, and it's going to be really interesting to see how, you know, news outlets react to the fact that we're going to have Trump is, you know, presumably still still president during this. Um, right. Someone narrating the Democratic race in real time on Twitter, and <laughs> what does that you know what does that look like? And count, and counter programming, right? I mean, yeah. counter programming rallies rally for rally maybe, and mm-hmm. and it's just going to be completely a style thing mm-hmm. in twenty twenty um, in a way that maybe it just has never been on the Democratic side before. Don't, we should not forget that Trump was incredibly effective at. Um, using the overabundance of candidates on the Republican side to his advantage. So is Michael Avenatti going to come in and, and there's going to be 20 other 
quote-unquote serious Democrats and Michael Avenatti is just going to be throwing bombs at the debate and everyone's going to be going wild and all of a sudden he's the 46th president. Like, <laughs> I mean, is it, is it, it impossible? Could be. Or, I mean, I, or is the, the rules of gravity will will apply this time? I, I hadn't considered that, but that's that's possible. Sure, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the the, the the it sure looks right now like because what happened last time on the Democratic side was there was a backroom consensus that we're not going to have a whole bunch of people competing for the pie, right? The fun rising pie. This time that's not happening. A whole bunch of people are jumping in. Right. It's a free-for-all. Um, you, you'll get Howard Schultz. You'll get The Rock. You'll get Mark Cuban. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it could be all kinds of people. And um, and th- that tends to be to the detriment of the party because you see, like, all the worst aspects of, of you know, all these people come out. I mean, that's what happened with the clown car episode last time. Um they all looked ridiculous, and Trump took massive advantage of, of that because he was the only real reality star in that crew of idiots. Um, he he just came out looking much better than all of them. Has the media learned anything from 2016 that they will take into? I mean, it's obviously not a monolith, but that they will take into 2020 in terms of how to cover someone like an Avenatti, someone you know, the, the sort of um, you know the the, the the why not me. Uh, candidates or or just the circus of it all, or are we just we're just going to keep plugging along like we do? I doubt it because for me the the huge lesson that 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 should have been learned in two thousand and sixteen was that we had become way too cut off from the population, right and I knew this from having covered many campaigns before that there is a a bubble that is real. You're literally walled off from the rest of the people when you're on the campaign trail. The Secret Service doesn't let you out. You're like in a prison together. I remember covering the Obama campaign, coming on the plane and seeing on the press uh, section walls of the plane, each person had posed with the candidate, like a yearbook style pictures. Right. And like, you know, I like Barack Obama. But I'm like, wow, that's a really bad look for us. You know what I mean? Like sure. we, we were supposed to be kind of like separate. And Trump apparently, like with reporters in the White House, like insists on it. Really? Pro- yeah, probably to, you know. Uh, have leverage over them. Uh, <laughs> like as a blackmail right, picture? Like, no, you're taking a picture with me. You're taking a... I've had White House reporters tell me this. I won't say who. That is really funny. So That's a good move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. But, you know, the, the, the fact that people completely blew off... Um, Trump's chances, despite the fact that he was packing these huge, like, WrestleMania-style arenas, showed how completely out of touch we were, right? Like, it, and, and, and it showed that we no longer had a sense of what is important to, to a lot of voters. And I think what happened in the postmortems was um, we've come up with a lot of explanations that are shorthand for us, but not for them, right? Like, all of Trump's voters are racist, they're all sexist, and that explains everything. Well, I mean, that's, that's a big part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. Um, it doesn't explain the failure of, of the other candidates as much, you know. Uh, right. It doesn't explain the dissatisfaction that people felt before Trump even entered the race. So I don't see that that problem has really changed a whole lot, you know. I mean, um, I think what, one of the things you'll see in 2020 is if candidates are going on the, you know, Democratic side are going to take any cues from Trump and antipathy towards the media is probably going to be one of them, right? Like, oh, yeah. You know, and, and I think you'll see this sort of insurgent, the Breitbart of the left has become a little bit of a cliche, but like even you know, the, the, you know, the Intercept, which is you know, where you, a company that you used to work at, like you'll see these sites really aggressively covering the soul of the Democratic Party fight that you were talking about mm-hmm. in a way that will be, you know, that will change the media landscape. I mean, it's something that I think about as a, as a media reporter. I think it's going to be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I remember covering Howard Dean when he first became a phenomenon, he had this um, sort of like 
I'll introduce myself to you tour that he called the Grassroots Express, where he invited everybody from all the the, the biggest news companies uh, on a plane trip around America. It was like uh, it was like this weird road trip, and all the big elite newspapers and TV networks sent representatives, and they spent the entire time asking him questions like. Are you too left to be president? You know, are you too much of an intellectual to be president? Are you too anti-war to be president? Right. So what they were really they're really telling him basically, like if you want to you're be, all those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're all those things, and if you want to be president, you're going to have to like move in a little bit in this direction, right? Because that's that's kind of how the the press core rolls, right? We we sort of tell you what the what presidential is, and and you know people kind of try to fit into into that. But when Donald Trump is president, maybe that gets upended a bit because presidential the definition has sure. changed, and that was a huge factor last time because Trump completely defied like all those orders, right, that we usually give candidates. Like we tell them straight up, you can't do this, you can't do that. We're going to call you fringe unless you do this, right? Like we're going to call you, you know, bookish or professorial if you do this, right? And Trump just crapped all over it. And and when we told him that his behavior was unacceptable, right, and that he should now no longer be in the race, like after the McCain thing, he just blew it off and said, I didn't say that, right? And, right. It, and his, his followers love that and precisely because they hated us so much. And that was the part that the press corps never caught on to, is, right. that, is that he was... There, there is a wing of the, you know, Democratic Party base that is, like, deeply suspicious of the mainstream media, if, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in maybe the same exact way that the Trump base is, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that's going to be, like, just a really, maybe a rude awakening for some members of the, the press that they thought that this wing of the you know, American life still trusted them, and but 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 doesn't. Um, no, and again, it's because for the most part, you can do this job without talking to people. I mean, this is this is an insight that I that I've unfortunately had to learn over the course of now. Like, this is going to be my fifth presidential campaign. Like, really, you're you're hanging out in the plane, you're traveling from city to city, you don't talk to anybody. You're, you're getting you're getting scoops, you know, from the sort of the the process horse race scoops from the you know, comms person or something like that. You don't have to go out and talk to the Yeah, to it's the in voters. the hotel. You, right. you, you know, you go from the event to the hotel and that night at the hotel over a couple of highballs, you sit down and they say, oh, here's what the numbers show, right? And and that's that's the journalism, whereas the reality is, like, if you want the real story, you show up at the, at the city two days in advance, like, hang out in the, you know, opium recovery ward, right? And, right. and, and find out what, what people are really thinking. Right. They, they hate us, you know what I mean? Like, and they and they hate that whole show. And that was a huge factor in in what Trump was doing. Trump Trump was was basically doing a barnstorming tour that was like you know anti elite. And to to those people, like a reporter who makes one hundred eighty thousand dollars is elite, you know. And Trump isn't, you know, right. <laughs> which which is which is so odd. No. But there's a, there's an element that's real to it, right? We are going to have to wrap things up there. Thanks, Matt, so much for coming on the podcast. No, thank you for having really me. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, before we go, one more time, I just want to say, tell someone about the show. Um, and if you want to tell me uh, what you thought of my guest hosting, you can tweet me at Perlberg, P-E-R-L-B-E-R-G. And uh, Matt, where can people follow you online? They can follow me at taibi.substack.com or at rollingstone.com. Awesome. And uh, thanks again to our sponsors and to Cadence 13 and Vox Media for selling those ads. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits the show, and to the producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Thank you, ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Taking selfies in the movie theater. That is a dumb idea. Do not do that. You know what is smart? Using ZipRecruiter to hire for your business. 
ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Their powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And ZipRecruiter spotlights the top candidates for your job so you never miss out on a great match. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. Who rates them number one? Trustpilot. They rated hiring sites with more than 1,000 reviews. That's who. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Now, our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. 